Matthew 5, I want to turn your attention there just as a launching point for this morning's sermon. This morning's sermon is going to be a bit of a preamble to tonight, but I'm building it still out of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus in verse 13 of Matthew 5, Matthew 5, verse 13, he said, you are the salt of the earth. And then in verse 14, he said, you are the light of the world. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Last week, I spoke a lot about salt and how salt is a preserving agent. It's a powerful um, compound, chemical compound that cannot be broken and it's, it's preserving in the culture. As Christians, we are salt. Even a little bit of salt changes the taste and flavor of the entree. And so our world is that entree and we are that little bit of salt that is having a potent, powerful, preserving and, and lasting effect in our culture. And I don't want you to underestimate that. You are also the light of the world. Now, last night I was looking out my back deck I've got a motion sensor light, a couple of them, and the lights popped on, and I thought, oh, what's out there? And I saw movement. You kind of fake yourself out and think, oh, there's nothing out there. It's just the wind, and oh, but what if it was, you know, and it's a moose. And so it was a moose's head looking in the window. But light, it grabs your attention, right? And it makes you you kind of look and see things more clearly. That's what you are as Christians. You're the light. You're the motion sensor light in the home conversation that you'll have with extended family, You'll have with a Christmas time meal, you'll see a a long lost friend, you'll have that phone call and you can be salt that makes people go, hmm, I want to taste something of what is being said right now. You're that light. Oh, wow. That's a new, different perspective that I really am not hearing out in the media right now. You're salt and light. So what does that look like? Well, Tonight we're going to tackle three themes, but this morning I'm going to zero in on one, and that is the theme of racism. Racism. One of the reasons I want to open up this issue is because I think the Bible throughout its entirety speaks to the races or the nations. And a lot of times people don't have just a biblical foundation for how we got here, why we are the way we are, why people speak different languages, why people are spread throughout the earth. What does it mean in terms of God's plan, God's perspective on race? And what does it mean to combat racism, which is at root level, if you take it all the way down to the basis of racism, it is hatred. How do you solve hate and something that is so culture altering and so invasive and so powerful in our nation's conversation right now? How do we solve for that? What part are we to play as Christians? Well, I want to just begin to answer this by posing one idea, and that is that racism is incompatible with Christianity. Racism is incompatible with being a Christian. If you're a Christian, you should not be a racist. It's contradictory. And this is a bit of a warm-up for tonight, but I want to begin by just defining racism. It's discriminating against or being antagonistic toward or thinking lesser of or thinking you are superior over someone's race. So it's 
being discriminatory, it's being antagonistic or thinking lesser of someone based on their race or viewing yourself as superior to someone else based on your own race. Now, there's a lot of jargon and um, themes and and angles to take in terms of cultural thinking, but I want to just boil it down to scripture this morning, and then we'll hit on some of the trendy um, elements of the conversation and how people are trying to solve race. We'll do that this evening. But Titus chapter 3 says in verse 3 that before you come to Christ, you were living your life hateful and hating one another. That's what the New American Standard, that's how it puts it, hating one another. I want to just kind of make this point. Hate comes from a heart that you are born with. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you. That isn't common to man. But with that common temptation, he provides a way of escape. Hate is common to man. It's a common condition related to being born in sin. I know this sounds pretty basic, but it's got gravitas and weight to it in light of what I'm talking about. Racism and hatred of people groups is common in our world. It's not just common to the U.S. It's common to our world. It's common to every epoch of history. People have done this. And they do this because man is born in sin with a heart that is bent toward hatred. To be a new creature in Christ means that old things pass away, everything becomes new. God, when you become a Christian, gives you spiritual heart, open heart surgery where he takes out your bad heart bent towards hate and replaces it with a new heart bent towards love. I said this recently in a panel discussion a couple weeks ago that... When I became a Christian at age 17, nobody had to teach me not to be a racist. I'm not saying that certain people don't need to be confronted about that sin, and we're going to talk about that. But I'm saying that when God gave me my new heart, I suddenly had a gush of love for everyone, all people groups, all people groups. It's just natural for Christians to manifest what is called the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is... One element of that fruit, love. It's loving. It's love that's shed abroad in your heart. It's where you see people now who are walking around and they are made in the image of God. And so if God made that person, however he made that person, if God designed that person to be geographically from where that person would be born, raised in the family, in the context of that family, and then would speak a particular language, There's something beautiful to that that should be striking in your heart because you're born again and you're seeing God's creation, which is the image of God. And we see that with new eyes, with fresh eyes, because God has given us a new heart. And so there's beauty in the races. Now, 1 John is a common book of the Bible to go to to evaluate whether or not you have a new heart or you still have an old heart. If you have the heart that you're born with that's bent towards sin and hatred, then that needs to be exposed by the light of God's word. And 1 John 4, 7 just does that very thing. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone that does not love 
does not know God because God is love. So if you love, you're like God. If you love, that means God's given you a new heart. If you don't have love, one for another, then you're not like God. And it means that you haven't yet been given a new heart. Let me say this just as a foundational point up front. To be a Christian, it's not okay to solely repent of hatred, but you also have to take another step as a Christian. You just you don't just stop hating. You also start loving. You see the difference? A lot of times people are trying to solve in our society. You can't hate people. You can't hate people. You can't hate people. I don't hear enough in common speak around the media. You need to love each other. You need to love each other. Christians love. They don't just repent of hatred. They also love because God has designed them to do that. That's why churches love missions. That's why churches love the globe. We love our country. We're good citizens. We're thankful for all that God has given to us. We love the state of Alaska, but we also love the world. One of the things I love about Alaska so much is that it is so diverse, right? The high schools are known, and I love to brag on this if I'm with people in the lower 48, that they're the most diverse high schools in the country. There's diversity here. You have people who are Texans, right? I'm joking around. But you have, you, I mean, they're a different culture all, all of themselves. No, you have, you have lower 48, you have oil patch, you have people from the UK, you have people who are Asian Islanders um, with fishing um, culture, you have um, a lot of Hispanic immigrants here, you have just an incredible panoply of race here and diversity, and I love that. And we should celebrate that. We have Alaska Native heritage here. I mean, this, you, have, you have Russian-speaking people and Russian who are here. This, this is the beauty of the United States of America, but it's the beauty of the world. And more foundationally, the beauty of what God created. This is an, a crossroads or an intersection within our globe and within our world. And I think it's part of why we're here and the purpose that we're here is to reach people, to reach the nations. And so he's, he's built that here for us. This is a place where you have a lot of cargo and shipping and, and planes are, you know, it's a, it's a depot station to relaunch and reload. So you just have a lot of traffic and a lot of transients here. And so to think about race, I think, is very important. We have a new heart in the gospel. Remember Jesus, when he confronted the great teacher of Israel, you are the great teacher of Israel, John 3, when he talked to Nicodemus. And it was fascinating that Nicodemus was sort of clueless about what was really the point of the Old Testament. The point of the Old Testament for, um, for Nicodemus is, you know, obviously, Jesus, you're a prophet. You can do things that no one else can do. But basically, how do you law keep? And Jesus is saying, you must be born again or you will not see the kingdom of God. You won't see anything. You won't see it now spiritually and you won't see it for eternity if you're not born again. What is that? That's having a heart transplant. Israel, he, Jesus was reflecting on Jeremiah um, 31 and Ezekiel 36, two prophets that are contemporaries during the Babylonian captivity. Remember Daniel and his three friends were shipped up for 70 years in Babylonian captivity. Well, those two prophets on either side of that, and I think 586 
um, yeah, 586 BC, they were speaking about heart change. They were speaking to Israel that anyone who is saved has this heart change where they're, they're washed clean from a heart that wants idols. Idols represent the world, the flesh, the devil. All the yuck you see in our culture is idolatry. All the sin, sexual immorality, lasciviousness, that is idol worship. And that's why they were in captivity. And Jesus or these prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, are saying, you need heart change. And I'm promising you that in the future, that's the point of everything is heart change. Jeremiah 31, 33. But this is the covenant or the promise I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. What's going to solve Babylonian captivity? You're going to have a new heart. In a new heart. I will remove the heart. Ezekiel 36, where he says, I will sprinkle clean water, verse 25. Sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from all your idols. Verse 26, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. That means a soft heart. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey the rules. You fast forward to Titus 3, 5, Paul's saying, look, this is the gospel. This is heart transplant. It's he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing, regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Listen, people are trying to solve race, hate, racism, discrimination with education. They're trying to solve with all kinds of sort of scientific formulas. We're going to talk about that tonight. But really, the way we solve the race issue in our own hearts is by having a heart transplant. And you're the gospel citizens. You're the emissaries. You're the messengers of this. God has given you this message. Yeah, we're clay pots. Yeah, we're fractured people. Yeah, we're not perfect. But we have the simple gospel. We have the key that opens up hearts so that they can love other people. And that's our mission. That's our testimony, is that we love each other in a way that is profoundly different than how the world knows or even has the capacity to do. We have a new capacity because of Christ. Old things pass away. We're new creatures. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, everything's come that's new. So we love indiscriminately because God is love. Well, allow me to clarify dangerous nuance. You know, that's, so that was point one. I didn't really give outline points this morning. That's very different. I didn't realize I did that until I just was thinking, I've got to, I just preached this first hour and now this is second hour. I don't really have points. Well, the, the, the solution, let me just make one up. The solution to racism is having a new heart. That's point one. Point two, point two, two is the dangerous nuance of Christianity and racism, and that is simply this. You could be a Christian and be tempted to be a racist. Now, Christianity and racism are incompatible, ultimately. But in, within the Bible's story, there are people who had to repent of racism. And I just want to put that out there. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, we have common temptations. And so you may need to very well dig in And privately and personally examine your own heart to say, is there something in me where I am 
being hateful towards someone, even for their ethnicity or for their social class or for their gender. I, I could be sinning in a way that I need to repent of. And I want to put one Exhibit A on the table this morning. Exhibit A is the Apostle Peter. Peter fell prey to this sin as part of his testimony. He'd already denied the Lord three times, right? Repented of that, was restored. Church leader, he's the profound preacher at Pentecost. He's the, the, the kind of key leader of the church at its beginning. But he wasn't perfect. He did sin in, um, in the testimony of Scripture. We see that. If you look in the book of Acts, I just want to kind of take you through the journey in um, quick fashion. Acts, uh, you know, chapter 10 brings up the story of Peter and Cornelius. Remember, Cornelius is a centurion Gentile who is prompted um, by um, the Lord who who, um, visits him through angels and says, you need to seek Peter out. He's on Simon the Tanner's roof at Joppa, which is, uh, you know, right on the Mediterranean Sea. Peter's up there praying at noon and the Lord gives uh, him a vision three different times. The sheet is lowered with animals that are unclean or unceremonially clean from the old covenant system. And the Lord is saying directly to Peter, kill and eat, kill and eat. The Lord is preparing Peter to evangelize to a Gentile, to think outside the box and understand that God, the Holy Spirit, didn't just come to the Jews, but also to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, to the nations. And he's coordinating this vision where, where Peter is confused and saying, I can't eat those animals. That's not right, but he's coordinating this so that Peter will open his heart and preach the gospel to Gentiles. Verse 9 of chapter 10, it was the sixth hour where Peter went up on the tanner's roof to pray. He became hungry, wanted something to eat. Verse 11, he saw the heavens open up, something like a great sheet descending down um, by its four corners upon the earth. Verse 12, in it were all kinds of animals. This is a large sheet. This is bigger than the flannel graph thing that you were brought up. Yeah, you didn't see that. Okay, you don't. Even, we don't even know what flannel graphs are. How many people know what that is? Okay, good. Verse thirteen. It says, "And there came a voice: Rise, Peter, kill and eat." It was all kinds of animals, reptiles, birds of the air. But Peter said, "By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean." That's the hubris, hubris, and pride of racism. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to abstain. I'm going to put a spiritual banner over why I'm going to separate myself from other things, and in particular, it can turn out to be people. Verse 15, and the voice came to him again a second time: "What God has made clean, do." not call common. Out of that, Cornelius comes and is um, beautifully born again. Well, if you skip ahead, there is uh, more of this division within the church and this problem at the Jerusalem council. And that's Acts chapter 15 is the Jerusalem Council. You have Peter, James, and John who are called the pillars of the church. They're the key leaders of the church at this time. So they're spokespersons. At the same time, you have Paul, who's a new believer, and he and Barnabas have gone through the first missionary journey. They've swept along through the Mediterranean. They've won Gentiles to Christ. And so they're coming back to the mothership in Jerusalem where everything began, where, you know, where Christ was and his ministry and all of that. And, and you, you have the, this is the central location of the church where everything's being decided. And 
Paul and Barnabas are sort of on trial in terms of vouching for Gentiles being welcomed into the church. Gentiles, we know, were known as uncircumcised. And what that means is they were, they were perceived as ethnically unclean um, to the Jews. So Jews who've been raised in Judaism, which the whole point of, of the Old Covenant is to say we're separated from sin, we're separated from Gentiles, we're separated from their idols, from all their ickiness. We're, we're separated, we're distanced from them. And so how is it that we're supposed to now understand and receive Gentiles who are not doing things ceremonially like we are? They're not cleaning themselves up. They're not becoming converts to Judaism. What Paul and Barnabas are saying and standing for and what they're working out is to say, you don't have to first become a Jew before you become a follower of Christ. You don't have to go through the old covenant to the new covenant. You can go right to the new covenant because Christ has solved it all, right? The temple um, veil was torn in two, top to bottom, and so there's free access entrance through the grace of the gospel. That's what's being hammered through in this context. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together, Acts 15, 6, to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, so a whole lot of like mental you know, sound bites are being used, a lot of gray matter, And Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by the mouth of the Gentiles, by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's talking there to, uh, you know, preaching at Pentecost and people coming in and and hearing even people from different um, people groups and hearing the gospel in their own language and they believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. God is saving the nations. He made no distinction, verse 9, no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a a yoke on their neck? Why are you trying to make them obey a law that's been resolved in Christ? Verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. What is the solution to racism and hate? It's grace. Now, you say, good, uh, Peter nailed it. No problem. Well, if you fast forward. Not too long after the Jerusalem Council, you have an account that Paul records in Galatians chapter 2 of where Peter, and you can turn there, but Peter went up to Antioch. So you have Jerusalem, and then miles north you have Antioch. And Antioch became the new missions post for the second and third missionary journey. So Jerusalem, we know they were suffering. They were a suffering church, and there were relief offerings that were even being sent down by Antioch, which is kind of a, a Jew and Gentile mission post where they're, that's the church that's now the sending agency for church planning um, up in Antioch. Well, Peter went up there. Paul was already up there, and Peter went up to join and help out. And it says in Galatians 2.11, when Cephas, who is Peter, Came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. What happened? Well, Peter was up there. He was doing just fine. He's eating with the Gentiles. No problem. James somehow was the sender of the circumcision party. People who were not 
fully understanding that the gospel is by grace alone. They were actually still compromised and were believing in a false gospel where you have to be circumcised first to be a believer. So this circumcision party comes up kind of under the banner of James um, sending them up there. They go up to Antioch, and as soon as they show up, Peter withdraws with them from the Gentiles. He withdraws from the Gentiles and starts eating and having table fellowship with the Judaizers, but not with Gentile converts. And Paul publicly says, this is not okay. Calls him out publicly. Look what the impact was here of the racism. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically. All the Jewish converts went with Peter. We're going to side with Peter here and act hypocritically along with them, with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray. This is the son of encouragement. Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. He saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Peter, look at this phrase, before them all, in front of everybody, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? If you're enjoying grace, why now are you putting these parameters on Gentiles? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of law, but through faith. So Peter was sinning. He needed to repent. He ended up writing First and Second Peter after that. We know that he did repent of this. There's no record of him staying where he was. But I think it's just important to understand that there might be areas in your life where you need to rethink and be more open. And how do you get there? You say, well, I'm not that. What are you calling me, a racist? I'm not that. Well, how open can we become? How loving can we become? How indiscriminatory can we become? How receptive can we become to each other and do so because of what? Grace. Because of grace. I was saved by grace. I'm no different than anybody else. Anyone that needs grace is just like me and anyone who's received grace is just like me because I needed grace and I received grace. And so I welcome everyone into fellowship. Christians need to repent of hatred, but they also need to put on love. If you don't repent of racism, you really cannot have the assurance of your salvation. It really is part of that. All right, here's point three. So again, point one, the solution to racism is a, is a new heart. Point two is the dangerous, dangerous nuance that you, you may need to repent of racism that is lying dormant in your life. And then point three, where did, all, where did the races come from? Okay, these points are just kind of topical points, but it was interesting to me. I was, I was going on this panel discussion a couple weeks ago, and... Um, and it was the night before, and I was you know, sort of laying awake in bed, and I'm thinking, I'm going to get asked the question about the races, and I need to know where the races came from biblically, right? I've been to Bible college and seminary and done some other stuff, but I, didn't, I, I needed to do some research. <laughs> so I started looking at my phone real quick and looking things up. And so the fruit of that study became something I wrote on, and, and now I'm preaching on it. So that's where this all came from. Go back in your Bibles to Genesis Genesis, that's um, the beginnings of everything, right? Genesis means beginning. We know man made in the image of God, Adam and Eve. You have kind of a single race coming from them. And you have he begat, he begat, he begat that goes on. And it, there's populating the world through people having children. And that's the storyline of the 
you know, antediluvian pre-flood state of the world. But as people were being born, they were also being born in sin. And ultimately, sin was multiplying upon itself in extreme fashion. Genesis um, 6, I think it's verse 5 or 6, says that every thought and intention of man's heart was evil only continually. The language is kind of building upon itself for how evil the world really was. And it was sort of building in evil upon itself. And God looked down at the world and this is an anthropomorphism or a a human-like characteristic where God, who's infinite, is expressing himself in a way that we can understand it. He says, I was grieved and burdened and sorry that I had made this world. And so now I'm going to destroy it. Now, this was all part of God's plan in the big picture. But in the micro moment, it is the true emotion of God where he's grieved over it and genuinely going to destroy it. And so he destroyed the world in cataclysmic flood, right, where where things are bursting from underneath and over top. And he's subsuming the planet and destroying every living thing save one family, which is Noah, his wife and children who are saved on the ark with the animals, right? And that picture of the ark is a picture of salvation and saving grace where they were saved through the waters and and, and delivered. And then it brings us, um, fast forwarding ahead to Genesis chapter 9, which is the ultimate reboot of the world's population. Again, the same command is given now to Noah, his wife. And it says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so you have, you have this family and you have Shem, Ham, Japheth. They are able to, with their wives, populate, Noah populating. And so it's a repopulating of the world. And so you have years and years and years of repopulation, just like it was with Adam and Eve. You have this begat, begat, begat. And it leads us to chapter 10. What I'm going to do here is give you a little bit of, a, of an understanding because I was sitting there again in my hotel room going, mm, okay, Genesis 10, why, you know, what, where is that historically and how does that sync up with Genesis 11? Because Genesis 11, if you know your Bibles, it, it talks about the Tower of Babel, which is where God diversifies everyone and splits them apart and populates the world in a way where people have different languages or of a different ethnicity and they're, they're put around the planet geographically by God's great intervention. Well, with that in mind, I'm reading chapter 10. And if you look at, you know, you have Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You have this, through those three sons, a trifurcation of weight generations are being, are happening and populating the world. And from Noah, and then verse 5, it says, From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each of his own language. There's that word language. By their clans, in their nations. And then verse 20, these are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And verse 32, these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Okay, so I'm going, how, how is that happening? And then you have the Tower of Babel scene, verse 11. Now the whole earth had one language. Wait, I thought that was already diversified with many languages. Um, and the same words. They had the same language, one language, same words. And as the people migrated from these, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen and for mortar 
Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. All right, Moses is the author of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. What's he doing here? What he's doing is he's basically using um, you know, some poetic artistry, just like you would watch in an old movie, maybe a World War I movie, where you see years and years of spanning battles and, and wreckage and, and you know, the outcome of war. And then at the middle of the movie, there's a retrospect where you go back to what happened that really was the cause of the war. Well, that's what Moses is doing here. He's giving the big picture in chapter 10 of the languages and the people groups being spread around the world. Isn't this interesting? Anyway, but uh, around the world. And then in chapter 11, the cause of where this all came from. There was a moment, you know, within the early generations of populating the earth and the attempt where everybody just gathered together and they said, we're not going to go. We're not going to obey. We're not going to verse four. We're not going to be dispersed over the face of the earth. We're not going to do it. Instead, we're going to pride build the tower of Babel and be like Satan wanted to be and elevate the heart to be like God and do, take over God's place as if you could, you know, in our own way. And God interrupted that. Verse five of Genesis 11, the Lord came down to see the tower, which the children of man had built. Lord said, behold, they are one people. They've all got one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Obviously, that was, again, an anthropomorphic statement, um, a human-like statement that God makes to show the desperation of the sin that was pervasive in mankind. He says, come, let us go down there and confuse their language. Now, this is judgment, but this is also grace. It's through this dispersion of the languages around the world that is protecting the people from themselves, from their own pride, from this one world domination and one world um, takeover movement. So they may not understand one another's speech. Verse 11, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off the building of the city. It was called Babel. They were dispersed they were, because they're, the Lord confused their language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, you say, so does that make, make language and people groups and ethnicities all under the idea of judgment and a curse and a bummer idea? No, because God didn't leave it there. And this is why Moses puts chapter 11 right up against chapter 12. Because chapter 11 is juxtaposed to a promise to redeem all the peoples of the earth. Remember the Abrahamic covenant? That's chapter 12. Abraham, he's selected as the father of faith to go from the Irving and the part of the Ur, Ur of the Chaldees all the way to the promised land, right? That out of his loins, Genesis 12 speaks of this, out of his loins, there would be a great nation. Obey me. Follow me, Abraham. Abram at that point. Follow me, Abraham, because out of your loins, out of your loins, out of this people of God, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. I will bless you. In him, verse 3 of chapter 12, who dishonors you, I will curse. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How in the world can all of the families of the earth be blessed? It's through the loins of Abraham, it's through the people of God, one day 
the Messiah would come. And through Christ, through believing in him, just like Abraham believed God and was counted righteous, through Christ, you extend that forward to Christ coming in the Gospels. Through Christ, believing in him, you're counted as righteous. And through Christ, all the nations are redeemed. This is what in Matthew 28, Jesus said. He said, go out into just a little part of the world and reach that, right? No, go out to all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples of every nation. That's the gospel. This is how it all ties together. So the races move from being an intervention at Babel to being people groups that are redeemed by the grace of the gospel. Babel represents sin and pride. Christ represents grace and redemption of all the people groups. And so Matthew 28, Jesus calls the church to make disciples. And truly the disciples there um, are, are called the church in Acts 2, not too much later. The 120 are in the upper room. The Holy Spirit comes. And when the Spirit of God is resting, um, is pictured as resting above all those disciples, what happens? Peter preaches at Pentecost. And all the people from different people groups and different nations and different nationalities that are coming to celebrate Passover or celebrate Pentecost at that moment, they're right there as one of the main festivals of Jerusalem. They're coming and, and they're hearing the gospel in their own glossolalia, in their own language. And they're amazed by that. But that's the amazing grace of Christ where the Holy Spirit is saying we've moved from just going to the particular people of the Jews to now we're going to the whole world. And that was always the plan all along. Even Israel itself as a nation was a light to the nations. But now the church explicitly is called to reach the nations and people are hearing the gospel and believing because they're hearing it in their own language. You say, what does all of this matter? I'm just trying to show you that Christianity and racism are utterly incompatible. I mean, I've just scratched the surface, but I'm trying to give you a, a, a biblical theology, a Bible overview of how God's plan was always to reach the nations. And within the nations and ethnicities and the races, there is design and there is deliverance and there is beauty as people groups are, are repenting of sin and believing in Christ and they're coming together in the church. Well, how does this all fit together? Well, in Ephesians um, chapter 2, Paul says that there was a wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles, but that wall of hostility, verse 14, has been broken down in Christ's flesh, and the dividing wall of hostility, it's been abolished. People are born in trespasses and sins. They need their, their sins solved, and it's solved by the cross. But you know what happens when someone's sin is solved? Their hearts are soft, and they have peace with other people, no matter what. I mean, Galatians 3, 28 and 29, it says, In Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male, female, all are one in Christ. Back up in Ephesians 2, it's the same thing. He says, The law and commandments have been abolished. 
that he, Christ, might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. What does that mean? Well, when you become a Christian, you're still the race that you were born as, and you know it, nothing changed with that. Um, when you become a Christian, if you're born as a male, I mean, no matter what, if you're born as a male, it doesn't matter what people assign you or whatever. If you're born as a male, you're a male. If you're born as a female, you're a female. No matter what, no matter who assigns what or whatever you're thinking, in your, you're a female. I hate to break it to you, right? And you're going, this is just Sunday School 101. But these days, um, with our culture, there is warrant to be this clear, right? If you're a male, you're a male. If you're a female, you're a female. If you're, if you're of a particular um, you know, background, um, where, wherever you come from, that's still true. But in Christ, we are made one. We're made one. We're co-equal heirs. We love each other. We're, we're reconciled by the same blood of Jesus Christ. Our sin is solved. So the whole point of church is to start with the gospel. Start with, we had an old heart that was bent towards hate. God has given me a new heart that is now bent towards love. And so there's a dividing wall that is dropped between us and we are one new people. And we're together in that way. But it's not in reverse. You don't try to reconcile people without starting with the gospel. And that's what our society is trying to do. Our society is continuing to try to reconcile through all kinds of means. And we're going to talk about some of that tonight. But we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. I'm not saying we shouldn't engage the culture and engage the conversation and speak intelligently. I'm reading some chapters on all of this, some articles on all of this. But I don't want to miss the just clear reality that you are salt and light in the world. And you have the key that unlocks the door of racism. It's solved in Christ by having a new heart. You know, there's just a beautiful picture of that all the way. If you want to go the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Revelation chapter 5 is the window of heaven around the throne. It says, I heard, verse 13, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea... Um, They were saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory forever and ever. If you go to Revelation 7, verse 9, this same vision of heaven. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. This This is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. All the sands of the earth, all the families of the earth. It says that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's all solved in the Lamb. You're still the race that you are when you're in heaven. You still are who you are. You're still, I think, the same Name and person that you are here, there, because the vision at Transfiguration when Moses and um, Elijah were down um, on the mountaintop, they were still recognizable as those people. Jesus, post-resurrection, was still walking around and people go, oh, that's Jesus. And they knew that was Jesus. Ultimately, he still spoke. He still ate. ate. He, he was still laden with the nail-scarred hands. That's a picture of heaven. In heaven, we'll be different, but we will still be who we are in our identity. And that's the picture here. It's the beauty of the vision of Christ. So what does this look like in the church? I don't have time to really unpack this, but I'll just give you the quick overview. One chapter, book of the Bible, Philemon. 
Um, you have Philemon. He's in Colossae, and he is a slave owner. And the slave is Onesimus. Onesimus runs out from under Philemon, flees that. He's an unbeliever. He stole from Philemon. He goes to Rome, and somehow, in some way, in God's providence, in a New York City-like environment where crowds and crowds of people are there back in the day when it was like that, right? Crowds and crowds. He finds the apostle Paul under house arrest, and Paul finds him, and they find each other. Paul gives him the gospel, and he's converted. And so what supersedes or is greater than Onesimus' identity as a slave— which it was, that was the capacity that he was working in and who he was. And he did break the law and he did steal from Philemon. I'm not saying anything about the rightness or wrongness of slavery. I'm just saying that the priority of that single chapter book of the Bible is that Onesimus became a new creature in Christ. And so that changes the way that Philemon and Onesimus are now supposed to relate to each other. That's the number one issue. And so... Solving how we relate to each other comes back to gospel transformation. This is how Paul spoke of Onesimus when he sent him back. He said, I'm sending him back to you, Philemon, sending my very heart. That word heart is flesh. I'm sending you a piece of my heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me or they might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that... Your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. Then listen to this. For this purpose is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. We see each other as if we're going to be together for all of eternity. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord. Now, there's probably no racial difference between Onesimus and Philemon, but there was a social class difference in that context. And once the gospel had transformed Onesimus' heart, Paul is saying to Philemon, you better embrace him, not just in terms of his social class, but you better embrace him as your brother and as even my own flesh. That's how this is solved in gospel new creation work. So I hope that's been encouraging. This is all a, a preamble for tonight. I won't now have to give that biblical theology of racism. We can just talk about it. But um, I wanted to do that at least and set it up for tonight. And I um, and also want to encourage you, be a gospel witness in your family. When you're together, if you're together by iPhone, if you're together in um, Christmas holiday settings, recognize that you have the truth and you have the solution. For a lot of things, be bold, don't be afraid, give the gospel, give the truth.